podcast about digital marketing, all things good and bad about it. And we're going to discuss a lot of the things that we want to grind axes about today. Big shout out to Church Girls for the music that you heard at the beginning, middle, end, and wherever else our editor decides to splice it in. And we've got a great episode for you today. We are joined today by Ben Hovannis. Ben, do you want to take some time to give everyone a quick introduction to yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm Ben Hovannis. I'm SVP of Marketplace Intelligence at Omnicom Media Group. It's kind of a vague sounding title, so I can break down a little bit of what I do. So basically, my role is to make sure that we're gathering insights about what's going on in the various media markets. And I don't just mean digital media, but also looking out to traditional vehicles like TV, radio, out of home, print. Make sure that we're doing a good job of aggregating it at the holding company level and then disseminating those insights to our clients. I've been in Omnicom for six and a half years now, and I think this is my fourth job there. So uh, so the journey continues to roll on for me. Ben also has a strong interest and expertise in auction dynamics, which we'll touch upon today. And we are very excited to do so. And his role uniquely enables him to sit in a position where he has access to a lot of information on that relative to yours truly and the other two hosts of the podcast. So we're very excited to be joined by someone who not only is a great expert who can speak incredibly articulately to these things, but you know, really is working with these things at scale on an everyday basis. We'll kick things off with sort of what I think we expect to be the main course of this, which is the modern state of auction transparency, dynamics, and established equity for brands in the year 2021 which uh, I, I don't want to presage anything or presuppose or put words in Ben's mouth or anyone else's, but I think we all think could be better. Ben, do you have any uh, particular points you think it's good to start digging into this trash pile at? Yeah, definitely. I've got a few. I mean, I guess I guess we can start at the micro scale and kind of work our way up from there. All right, so you're an advertiser. You're bidding on search keywords on Google or Bing, or you're bidding on an audience on Facebook, you put in a bid value. How do you know that what you end up paying is the outcome of a fair auction process? It's a trick question because you can't, because there's no auditability of auctions inside of the walled gardens. And I'm not picking on anyone in particular, to be clear, this is a universal problem for walled garden platforms the literal inability for advertisers to understand the mechanical relationship between their bid strategy and the clearing prices that they get as an output. It's a fantastic point. And to pick on someone, I think, who is probably the most offended player in this space with kind of a particular feeling slash insight that I have having started my career in search marketing and having spent a lot of time talking about the Google auction, I think it's a good one to look at because it's one that I think people probably give a little too much credit for still being more understandable than it is. And for a few simple reasons, if you hear me say the Google search auction is not terribly transparent and a little confusing and perhaps a little worrisome to dive into, I think there's a lot of people who would say, what are you talking about? It's, it's bid times quality score. Didn't you watch the Halvarian video? He, he's old. He's grandpa-like. He's sweet. He's nice. It's one number times another, you dummy. And at one point it was like that, but I, I've seen a lot of people kind of 
I think, miss some developments, to be honest. And this is just to sort of frame that I think this problem has gotten a little bit more out of hand than a lot of people think. That may have been true, that quality score times bid cost. And I, a long time ago, things were so simple that I could maybe believe that. However, in this new environment and with a, a few new introductions, it's become incredibly clear that there's very low transparency. And I could go through a long history of this, but I'll just skip to Google's newest, most favorite pet, the responsive search ad, which is just search DCO, type up 12 headlines, four descriptions, hit go. Uh, you get incredibly beautiful granular information back like the word poor, good, or best by a particular component. So obviously it's monstrously quantifiable and uh, applicable. But one thing that they're now telling you, if you're a slow responsive search ad adopter, and, and they muddle it a little bit, to, so maybe they can couch it back to this all works in the quality score, is they'll tell you that you're losing out on impressions because if you have no responsive search ads, there's simply auctions, you know, that I don't think they'll outright say you're not being entered into, you know, they're very good about keeping the language careful and making sure that someone could probably be flown in to say, no, 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 it's all still there in quality score. But I mean, they're outright saying, if you don't make responsive search ads, there's a lot of impressions you're just not going to get, Haas. Which to me indicates that they're fully in a place where other platforms, I think people more acknowledge have been, where they can say, oh, these are all universal ad slot. Oh, but if you're running video, you know, maybe you get a few more. So I am willing in my quest to become the least employable man on earth come out and throw a punch at the big G because I think a lot of people that's the last torchbearer of, oh, I, I think they're doing a nice, I think they're doing a nice job, but you can't look at quality score in your bid and know anything anymore. So I, I think it's really gotten pretty far out of hand. I think especially as the majority of search has kind of transitioned from the original, you're bidding on a click, you know what you're willing to pay for a click on whatever keyword versus now when you're setting a target CPA, you don't even get, you can't even really get the insight of like, what is the click bid going in there? It's, it's more wishy-washy. And that to me is like, you're trusting Google to find the, the right audience. And I don't know. So I'm not going to say anything about any particular partner, but I, I will start my response to what you just both said with a general observation, which is that in the beginning, the biggest platforms were using either a pure second price auction, um, which is what Google started with, or they're using a buyer-friendly variant of a second price auction, which is what Facebook started with. They started with something called the VCG auction. That's Vickery Clark Groves. And it basically, it's just an elaboration on your classic second price such that it accounts for the difference in value between different slots. And that was to get around something that you're all very familiar with, I'm sure, which is uh, messing with your bid strategy and search ads to take advantage of the fact that you could pay a lower price for a, a lower placement that actually was still a better value than bidding for the highest placement, right? And then classic second spot. Second spot was great in a lot of those early auctions. Yeah. And like the way I would summarize this, not as a search guy for our listeners, is you could get the second spot for 20% less, but you'd only lose 5% of your performance. And that's obviously a net benefit to advertisers who are budget constrained, right? Is that fair? Yeah, you're not a search guy, but that's almost exactly on in those percent ranges. Even it was a near identical value for second slot. 
in a lot of auctions. But yeah, a double digit percent. That must be on a on a hot streak tonight because I picked those numbers out of the air entirely. Ben, play the lottery after this, or go on a lottery podcast if that's a. Real yeah, let me. Thing. I'll go into my brokerage account and just uh, choose a symbol at random. So anyway, that's where things started, and you know people's impressions of how systems work are necessarily a lagging indicator of how they actually work, right? So when these platforms come out, they're like, oh, we're a second price auction. The game theory of that is really straightforward. And I do mean game theory in like the classic academic nerd sense where it's been studied in detail and there are proofs explaining why in a second price auction, the optimal strategy for every bidder is to bid what something's worth to themselves. Anyway, suffice to say, it's been proven if you're running a true second price auction and you as a buyer know what something's worth to you, you should just bid what it's worth to you because you'll, in every case, end up paying less than what it's worth to you, giving you what's called a buyer surplus. So that's like the value back to you. I mean, a simple way to think about that is like you go to the store, you buy a pack of gum for 50 cents because you need to freshen up your breath, but you've got a big meeting to get to. And that pack of gum is really worth $10 to you. Your buyer surplus is worth $9 and 50 cents. It's the difference between what you paid and what it was worth to you in that moment. Right. And that's the premise behind a second price auction. You know, you bid $3 on a click because that's what it's worth to you. And the next highest bidder is at $2. You pay a penny more and your buyer surplus is 99 cents. It's a great thing for buyers when the system's working as intended. The challenge is, as Ryan, you were saying, is that now these platforms are moving away from a pure second price auction model, but still encouraging that classical behavior. And to your point, if you're on a target CPA model, it might no longer be optimal to do what uh, game theorists call truthful bidding, which means just being honest about what an item is worth to you because it's the best strategy. If you're not in a real second price system, truthful bidding actually stops being optimal. It starts being a suboptimal strategy. And yet uh, we have representatives from some of these platforms sometimes continuing on with this rhetoric of like, well, what's it worth to you? Well, what's it worth to you? I mean, I've even heard that from sales representatives about first price auctions where bidding what something is worth to you is an actively destructive strategy because in a first price auction, you pay exactly what you bid. So you, you have no opportunity to capture surplus if you're bidding uh, what it's worth to you. And it's amazing because sometimes you'll still encounter people who have a little bit of fear around some of the non-walled garden platforms where it's a bit more bring your own tech and bring your own brains that well, sure, you can tell me that I might have access to even bidstream level data, but that's that's difficult to analyze and it's difficult to get into that game. And it's like, well, it's a game you're not even allowed to get into in the simpler places. So, a hundred percent. So this was this was a revelation I had, and maybe it will be obvious to to you or some of your listeners. But it was when I I moved over from Resolution to Hearts and Science at Omnicom, and so when I was at Resolution, my background was pure paid social, and then. When I left Resolution, I was the head of social there. So I'd spent all my time purely in these walled garden environments, and I hadn't had exposure to the much more disaggregated Wild West world of programmatic. So when I moved over to Hearts, my job responsibilities changed, and I became responsible for digital activation across all these different biddable platforms. And, you know, search is fairly similar structurally in terms of what your experience is as a buyer to paid social. So that wasn't too alien to me, although obviously it's more intent-based and audience-based. But the craziest thing to me was getting into programmatic and realizing that the bid stream is literally atomized in a way that it never is when you're in the walled gardens. Meaning that like Lee, you're just talking about bid stream data, right? Like in the programmatic world, you can literally see every single bid request flowing in from supply sources, right? 
You cannot see that in the paid social or paid search worlds. You just look at the aggregates after the fact and reporting. So it really limits the degree of insight you're able to get. So for me, like structurally, people talk about biddable media as if it's this monolithic thing. But to me, that's the biggest distinction. It's like, can I actually get down to that most granular level of the individual auction event when I'm doing an analysis or even in how these buying systems are working? Or can I not? It's a vital distinction. And that's a great point. Biddable media is such a hot bucket right now. Hot mess bucket. It's a large bucket. <laughs> There's a lot in it. It's, it feels like it's it's gone beyond mixing the saltwater and freshwater fish. It's 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 a strange thing. And you know, Ryan, you were talking on previous episodes about how to you coming up through sort of the analyst realm. That was the real strange Rubicon to cross. Was sure you can be like, oh, you've only run Facebook search, it's gonna blow your mind. But like, not not really. Not compared to like. What is a moat? <laughs> like, <and> why? <laughs> like, I am not here to go to the Renaissance Fair. This is ridiculous. So yeah, it's it, it's a very strange distinction that is not as much a distinction because I guess somehow somewhere there's an organization where the tribes are still direct buy versus log into internet. <laughs> it's kind of strange, and I, I I didn't know I didn't know that was still out there. So this is a problem. It's, it's a major issue. I guess we could start with how to categorize how big an issue it might be for you as a brand or as a buyer. Yeah, that's a really good, uh, a good lens to put on it. I mean, I think that what's universal is that everyone needs to have a really clear understanding of how their bid strategy actually interacts with prices. To Ryan's point, right? Like, if you're in a target CPA bidded environment, your strategy should not be the same as when you're in a pure second price auction. It definitely shouldn't be the same as when you're running a first price auction or buying into a first price auction the way you are in programmatic media, right? So, like, you know, I'll throw out a hypothetical that might strike a nerve, but, you know, imagine someone who's been cast in the role of a biddable activation person or a digital biddable person, right? And there's this dream. A dream that they're supposed to be operating seamlessly without difficulty across search all these different paid social avenues uh, and programmatic at the same time and they are told that the goal cpa from the client is 30 dollars and so then they dutifully go into each of these different buying platforms which are entirely different marketplaces with completely different bid strategies and put in that 30 dollar value like does that does that possibility seem realistic to any of you because it 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 seems plausible to me if i were currently in the employ of anyone deploying any managed service contracts i would deny knowledge of any such activity (laughs) Um, would i put my hand on a meaningful book in a courthouse and say i hadn't absolutely strapped a recent hire into a capsule aim them at the sky of log into internet, punch in many numbers and said, try not to burn up on reentry. Uh, well, um, it might've happened. Might have happened. Yeah. Let's hear from the astronaut. <laughs> Don't give me away. <laughs> no, I mean, I think to, to, to your point, Ben, it's, it's almost like you really have to have an understanding of each the each of these platforms you might be using, each of their models for their auction, and then how are you 
almost backtracking into, okay, what am I willing to say is my target CPA or target cost per click or whatever it is? How does that back into my goal? Because I think what you said earlier about, you know, using what your actual target CPA is as what you're setting in a certain platform or whatever is actually detrimental. It kind of blew my mind. It's like, wow. Yeah. I mean, you can't just have this one number that is everything. You have to retrofit it into how much you know about or don't know about how these platforms or auctions are working. As these platforms start to evolve and change and within like behind closed doors or quietly or only like specific like partners kind of get to understand like the updates to any of their their marketplaces or our auction dynamics and those kind of things is that these platforms are slowly starting to shield you from the ability to to make a granular bid, you know, with the introduction of, of, of smart bids um, and, and other, you know, automated bidding solutions, it's it's kind of like just trust our, our bank of computers that we have in Kansas City uh, and it'll outthink you and it'll bid optimally and perfectly for you every single time. And, you know, there's a lot of those conversations where you're just like, okay, um, or you really have to like challenge and then you you have then have to hire a bunch of bodies and have a bunch of time like manually pulling and doing all these like, like master reports just to try to make sure that what you're doing um, is actually above board uh, and the best practice for each of these platforms, different auction dynamics is they slowly start to strip the ability away for you to make these granular bids. And they're pushing you more and more towards these automated solutions, which again, kind of to your very opening like statement and question is like, you, we have no idea if this is actually in the best interest of the client and advertisers, um, or if it's just more of pocket lining for, for the, the platforms themselves. That's the problem with the whole construct. And and the reason that I harp on it whenever anyone says the word auction is not because I'm trying to beat up on anyone. The, the reason is because it worries me about the long-term health of and client trust in this model, right? Like if auctions become so opaque and platforms that are selling take a lot of control of the bidding, it's going to undermine confidence in this whole auction model. And there's a real risk that if enough advertisers push back against it we can go back to the bad old days of stratified rate cards with 30 million permutations of cpms based on your combinations of targeting geo whatever like that would be bad in their ideal form auctions are a huge improvement over the way ad markets were run before but if they're tampered with so much we may never get to that future where everything is just cleanly transacted through auction systems or at least at least most of it is so that that's the place my concern is coming from like it's an amazing technological breakthrough the the guy who came up with commercial applications of auctions at scale won a nobel prize for it uh, as william vickery so it's it's a meaningful advance in matching buyers and sellers and so uh I want to make sure that we're taking full advantage of it and able to benefit from the transition to auctions for the foreseeable future. And there's interestingly misaligned incentives that I feel like I didn't fully appreciate until fairly recently when I was sort of acting as like, I would call it data hostage negotiator between Google ads and a client. I say data hostage negotiator because I, I both strangely felt like I was playing devil's advocate and being like, yeah, let's get them. And it was specifically around, I had a client that fairly was very skeptical about the deployment of automated bidding in the Google search environment. But to make a long story short, 
They were using the Google measurement stack. All signs pointed to, look, if the goal is number of bell rings in the Google measurement stack, you're, you're just going to get way more bell rings. And I kind of made a, a, what I think was a, a more effective point than I had been at one point where I said, look, you don't even need to watch the AlphaGo documentary or believe that their machine learning is powerful. I mean, there's, there's reasons to believe they're good at machine learning, but they're also just taking data off the table for manual optimization. And I went to my classic one because you used to be able to have a little more control over this in search and then it was taken out, which is just mobile operating system. And you just pull the Google Analytics data and you're like, look, here's a simple fact. And you know, if this was it for this client. I was like, iOS clicks are worth 1.9 times more than Android clicks. I can't do anything about that. There's no toggle for that left even. We could have that value and know that I can't input it. It is specifically stated that the auto bidder can. And so I was like, you don't even have to believe the auto bidder is good at bidding. It literally can just view and operate on 40 more columns than I could. So it's, it's not even about man versus machine. It's about data access. And this client was just like, why would they do that? Like that, that just, that just doesn't make us feel good. Like, you used to be able to do this and now you can't. And then I, I went to a weird level I didn't expect having previously worked at a search tech optimization firm. And I was like, okay, here's my sympathy for the devil moment. Sometimes we would roll out a really cool auto bidding feature. And all we needed to do was have the clients pull one report and go in and put in the appropriate numbers and 6%, AKA at that platform, like four of our clients, would go and pull it and do a really good job. And three months later, we'd be in a meeting and be like, we just got to force it on them. Just roll it out. And I was like, so you're smart and asking good questions. I think someone at the platform is getting frustrated about adoption rate. And you who have valid smart questions about why can't I do my own granular factorial bidding are just dumped in this bucket with like, Look, we, we got 12% adoption rate on this thing that works. And so there's there's just weird misaligned incentives right now to the extent that I think someone could be not totally evil at a platform and logistically force more of this on brand advertisers who then for very good reasons get upset. So it's it's like a strange problem, I think, where these platforms are trying to push their performance for brands in ways that take control out of the brand's hands. And some of the brands justifiably are like, I'm smarter than that. But you have this looming cloud of brands that are the reason this is getting yanked out of their hands. Do we think this is mostly in part due to the, the platforms trying to reach the full spectrum of, of ad buyers all the way down from the enterprise level clients to small uh, SMBs uh, that are doing stuff like on their own? And everything kind of becomes the lowest common denominator. And so instead of having multiple platforms, there's a singular interface and a singular platform and everything kind of moves to the center in terms of the, the ability for, for manual optimization just kind of gets removed for the simple fact of making it easier for a lot of aggregate revenue streams from, from small businesses. I think there's certainly some evidence that that's a factor. I think it's in the financial interest of all these platforms to make their ads products as accessible as possible to the widest possible range of buyers. Google and Facebook each have, I think, coming up on 10 million unique advertisers operating on their ads platforms. And, you know, just 
by necessity, very few of these as a percentage are going to be sophisticated advertisers who have the expertise or resources to employ sophisticated bid strategies. I will say unequivocally, it's a good thing that there are easy modes for buyers on these platforms. Um, I think the problem is when in tandem with rolling out easy modes to make it easy for people to get in and start getting value, the advanced modes are taken away from experienced and sophisticated buyers. And I think that's where we really run into problems. I mean, I think, you know, to use an, a, a simple analogy from the world of finance, if you have no idea how to invest, but you got some money and you want to start investing, you can just open an account with one of the major brokerages like Fidelity, Vanguard, whatever, I don't care. And turn on automated investing and they'll just take care of it for you. That is investing easy mode, right? And it may not yield like market beating returns, but it will be a completely responsible, decently yielding way to invest your money, right? On the flip side though, you can also open accounts with these companies and uh, and start buying obscure derivatives. You could, like as long as you meet the uh, the expertise thresholds, you can put all your money into meme stocks, right? Like that's a thing we saw recently. So the important thing is, not just catering to the lowest common denominator, it's making sure that buyers of all kinds have access to the levers that they want to be pulling. And that's where I really like wear my agency hat hard. Advertisers are paying for all of this stuff. So if they want to mess with their bid strategy in a way that you think is suboptimal, your opinion is noted, but it's not your money. episode we discussed what may be coming with this wave of i guess we could call them the grocery store dsps and the proliferation of potential buying environments a lot of which are built on i think some fairly standard technology but to your point it seems like we're coming up on an era when Centralized pools of expertise with a view into a wide array of advertiser situations on a particular platform will be more valuable than ever. You know, we, we use this example of God forfend there becomes a Kroger DSP that all the CPGs have to be on. Really, the only hope for anyone is someone having 50 different clients on the Kroger DSP, which, yeah, what, what would that be? That'd be an agency. Yeah, you're doing a, a great job of justifying the existence of a marketplace intelligence function. And Ben, yeah, we're, we're not here to show for you, but yeah, it's it's almost if it's a centralized group of expertise with what I believe the consultancies like to call verticality, which is how they tell you it's good that they work on our competitors, which I'm not disagreeing with. I'm saying that's very differently viewed in different spaces. But yeah, it's it's something that I think is going to have much more visible value because of a believably happening proliferation of platforms. But it's difficult because on the very largest platforms, they're kind of running away from that trend. There's no, you know, button that you have to turn to ignition keys, you know, to unlock Facebook hard mode. It, same same thing with Google. There's increasingly inventory, not just in search, but in YouTube, that is off the table unless you play within these platform rules. I cite YouTube specifically because third-party pixels have been completely ousted. Third-party data has been completely ousted. 
those large platforms are, are running away from this whole realm. And it's, it's again, it, it's hard for me to form a cogent opinion personally on what advertisers at varying sizes and positions should be doing about it to an extent. In terms of insight into what's going on in the marketplace, there's very, very little that's publicly available. I think there's this misconception that because these big platforms are very technologically advanced and sitting on tons of data, there's easy access to understand what's happening in these various marketplaces in in paid search and paid social, like a stock ticker. It doesn't exist. It's not a thing. And so that's a lot of the value that my group tries to provide to the agency and our clients is helping people understand what's going on in each of these big platform markets and then within different subsets of these markets. So for example, you're you're running a conversion optimization campaign on Facebook and yesterday your CPA spiked. Is that because you put in a new creative or is it because the market shifted and CPMs for that objective went up? Without access to aggregated data from across many different advertisers, you cannot answer that question, which makes it hard to do your job as a good agency person who's trying to provide good service to the client. Because you know our clients are quite reasonably going to say, what the heck happened to our, uh, our CPA last week? Uh, you want to be able to have a good answer that's grounded in both the micro of you know, what have we been doing on this campaign and also the macro of what's going on in the market. Because as I said earlier, you know, if you're on, if you're buying on Facebook or Google, there are seven or eight million other bidders who could be impacting the prices that you pay. And it's funny how much there's this notion that marketplace intelligence is needed with so little resource. And the main thing I think of was at the beginning of COVID, you know, you're having a normal one when you associate the onset of COVID with a phenomena in the digital advertising professional services world. But I was talking to a lot of people who were like reading new, you know, a client reads a news article about, it, you know, people are at home, CTV consumption is up. And someone's like, what is this doing to our video mix? And you're like, uh, you spend like $700,000 a year on video. So there's literally no market dynamic that you're pushing up against in terms of scarcity. Uh, you're, you're basically just tapping in the fill rates. And then they're like, well, how do you know that? And I'm like, Uh, Okay, I don't. I I don't. I don't 100% know that. I just, I have a sense for what the OLV floor rate is for your audience. So that's a great point and something that was kind of harped on in episode seven about where the traditional TV market has its little legs up was there's a lot more public information and value data. Uh, there's, There's a lot more, a sense of homogeneity to some of the value of things and and because of just the way that market has operated forever. Whereas the disadvantage of digital audience targeting and, and advanced segmentation and then the assignment of quality to ads makes it very hard to understand if you're overpaying for online video versus even an analog competitor. Whereas you might come away from the TV upfronts with a, a strong sense of that. Yeah, it's almost like digital is like easy, low point of entry, easy to get involved, but not a lot of visibility versus TV or more traditional things. And that's where I'm curious, Ben, some of your, the traditional side of this where like, you know, TV, there is just that much more historical and out there data. But obviously, if you're a tiny new brand, you're not buying a TV spot for a variety of reasons. Yes, I mean, we could do a 
probably a series of podcasts on uh, <laughs> comparing and contrasting the the TV market with uh, with the digital market. So I'll try to answer that as lightly as I can. So yes, it's definitely the case that we have better insight into the total volumes of available inventory in TV than we do in the digital world because like we can access ratings and figure out like for demo X, how many GRPs were there even available to buy in the United States last year, right? Or how many impressions, if we want to back it into that and, and look at it in CPM terms. Whereas uh, to my knowledge, that's literally impossible with digital media. I have never seen anyone try to estimate the total number of Facebook ad impressions that were sold in the United States last year, for example, or the number of clicks that were purchased in Google search. Like, I think it's such a monumental task, no one's even attempted it. And so, yeah, Lee, to your point, if a client specifically asked me, what is the threshold at which my demand will interact with scarcity such that prices rise? Uh, that's, uh, that's a pretty complex modeling question, and you'd be going through that exercise based on very limited data. So yeah, that's, that's definitely a big, a big area of difference. And hopefully it's something that will change in the future and we'll have more insight into available inventory as we go into a planning cycle and not just always be looking in the rear view mirror like, oh, well, we tried to scale and we couldn't scale. I mean, how many times have we all had that conversation? Why is there under delivery? Why are we having the under delivery conversation, right? And it's, it's because it can be quite hard to forecast. And even if we talk about the atomized world of programmatic, right, where you could kind of start to back into it because at least you've got this great bulk of bid requests flowing in. You can kind of maybe try to feel your way to overall supply potential. You can't because of all the duplication that happens in bid requests because the same bid requests get mirrored across five or 10 or 20 different SSPs in an effort to maximize yield by publishers, which I'm not saying is a bad practice, by the way, it makes perfect sense, but it just throws a wrench in the gears of trying to estimate overall supply. So yes, that is something that I hope gets a lot better in the future. I would say that one thing that, you know, these marketplaces that we've been talking about really have going for them is they're much better at setting efficient market clearing prices. You don't have to be a TV hater to look at the trends in, in TV prices and look at how varied the scatter market is from year to year, which is all the TV media that's bought out of the upfront, just to see that it's not functioning as well as might be desired. Something that I like to talk about just as a conceptual tool when having these conversations is the difference between scarcity and shortages, right? So scarcity means there's not an unlimited supply of something. So you need to attach a price to it so that you can allocate the scarce good out, right? And, and we, we live this experience daily, whether we're talking about going out to nice restaurants or looking for apartments to buy or buying digital media. All this stuff is priced because it's not an unlimited supply. Shortages are when you have ready money and you're willing to pay the prevailing market price, but you cannot buy. And a shortage, if it happens a lot, is evidence of a dysfunctional market. So when you hear about something that's permanently sold out, I can't buy it, I can't buy it, there's no more, it indicates that something's gone wrong. And there are things that are a lot scarcer in the world than TV ad impressions, right? Think about stuff that's really rare, like on earth, like large fine rubies, for example. You want to buy a five carat ruby? There are not a lot of those floating around at a, a good degree of quality. Or you want to buy a penthouse apartment in Manhattan or London or Hong Kong? Not a lot of those. But those are high functioning markets. So if you've got the cash to spend, you can get those things. So 
you think about those things that are really rare, where there are maybe only a few thousand in the whole world, and you compare it to something like TVGRPs and wonder why that goes into shortage conditions, even though those are quite abundant by comparison. To me, it indicates a market that's not functioning as we might like. So I guess what I'm saying is I hope that uh, these two worlds can take the best from each other, that TV can become more dynamically priced and more fluid so we stop having shortage conditions as a fact of life and uh, that we get more transparency into the underlying supply and digital markets so that we can better predict and plan. That's a wonderful and beautiful vision of the future. And it would be great to see that come in, you know, obviously be great to be done with TV outright shortages. And again, it kind of calls back to something that uh, Mark Goldman from Adelaide talked about in episode seven with the problem with, an extreme mass availability of low quality inventory that's technically a viewable human impression, according to the verification services, is you create the wild opposite of a shortage and no scarcity at all. And all of a sudden there's no downside or, or lost opportunity cost if you lose out on very high quality impressions, because there's always an infinite amount of low quality, but technically legal impressions. So it'd be, it'd be very interesting to see in great, a happy convergence come to digital where there's some form of perhaps it's market intelligence, perhaps it's, it's some sort of better broad certification where there's neither a shortage, nor is there a false abundance where it's like, I mean, I never have under delivery problems on this audience because there's always 13.9 billion impressions on this audience if I, you know, just loosen the belt a little bit. So I, I think it's interesting because you make a great point that, you know, in TV, the lack of a high functioning marketplace and scatter results in, uh, you know, a, a full on shortage sometimes. And then there's parts of digital where the lack of a high functioning marketplace is sort of a, a mirage abundance where there's always something to buy, which is we, we talked about previously with auction floor prices and the reality of that, you know, who really even wants some of these impressions? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, the glut of garbage display impressions is part of what enabled the rise of the walled gardens. And that's, that's honestly to the credit of the big walled garden companies, because they realized, you know, curating a marketplace and setting a floor on ad quality and ad experience is an unmet need for advertisers in the digital space. And they've succeeded on the merits, uh, you know, to your point, the incentives in the open web for a long time, and maybe still in the display world, were just, okay, well, if there's no limit on how many impressions I can have in a frame, then let me just stick as many ads in this frame as I possibly can, right? And for an individual actor, that makes perfect sense, right? Like, you know, if each of the four of us have a website, and I decide that I can triple my monetization by putting four times as many ads on the site. That's what I'm going to do. And that's all good for me, right? But then each of you visit my website and see what I'm doing. And now you all do the same thing. And you've got instant, uh, instant deflation, right? Because the price of ads is going to tank. And now I'm going to say, all right, well, four ads clearly didn't do it because my revenue was only up for a little while. I'm going to go to 10 ads. We're doing 10 ads. And then I do that. My revenue pops back up for a little bit. My user experience gets even worse. You visit my website. You see what I'm doing. And then you all do the same thing. And we're back where we started. So 
in, a, in an environment like that, where you have a coordination failure by all these different actors, you can easily end up with an experience that's not great for advertisers because each of these ads is individually less valuable than it was before, even at uh, a fraction of the price. And also it's not really great for, uh, for sellers because they're, they're spinning the wheels like crazy trying to yield optimize and the experience is going to hell, engagement's declining and you know, now they have an ugly website. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that's the opposite scenario, Lee, to your point. garden baseline quality and, and the merits of that, I think that's a great segue to something that we had brought up a little bit in episode seven, uh, but can get a, a much more thorough, informative, and, and thoughtful look on the, the current state of now, uh, simply because I know I'm personally a big ignoramus of the state of this and social. Uh, we, we talked a lot about different opinions of brand safety and content adjacency and how it's a standard that in programmatic media, which is content adjacent in a way that people have always effectively conceptualized. And to your point about people's understanding being a lagging indicator, you know, it's always been extraordinarily obvious to people that if you're placing an ad on a website, a website is content versus feed-based advertising, where it's a little bit more complex and nuanced, which for a long time, I mean, among the many things we said, we all agreed, it got a huge pass. If you were a programmatic person sitting right next to a social-only person at an agency, you had this whole brand safety and content concern. And for a long time, they did not. So whatever one thinks about brand safety, content adjacency, or anything, there's a very clear different standard. One of the many reasons we're super excited to have been on is that actually been at the forefront of addressing this discrepancy in the way they're treated. And so Ben, tell us about CASA. Uh, yeah, thank you. So uh, first of all, it's CASA like NASA. Okay, sorry. I, I That's why I didn't do One it. One of my pet peeves is unpronounceable acronyms. Uh, so in terms of my optimization KPIs, I was trying to avoid that so you know even mix of vowels and consonants nicely distributed felt like the way to go it's a beautiful word and i get it it, it reads well it sounds good but go it, it's not a backronym like the patriot act or whatever it actually makes sense i promise so it's council on accountable social advertising and why the word accountable from our perspective it's because from a two key angles, there wasn't really sufficient accountability, especially when compared to traditional media. And there, there are four different pillars to CASA, but I'll, I'll just focus on a couple. So the first one is advertisers haven't historically had the ability to control where their feed-based ads deliver relative to other content in the feed. And I know this is old news to you old paid social hands. But a lot of people who are not very familiar with the tactical operations of these platforms are shocked when they hear this. It's like, wait a minute, you're saying that my ad could show up next to some story about white supremacists doing horrible things and I can't prevent that? And the answer is yes. 
historically for these feed-based platforms, there have not been adjacency controls. Now, there have been some advances since we launched this initiative in July and got the big platforms on board. But at the time we kicked it off, it was because those sorts of controls were entirely absent from feed-based environments. And now, you know, if we compare this with traditional media environments, like let's take TV, because we were talking about TV earlier, it's common practice for advertisers to have do not air lists. There's literally a list of programs that get sent to TV sellers of the programs that uh, brand X does not want their ads to appear in. And that's just that. That's the end of the conversation. There's no debate about it. So that's the control angle. And then the flip side of control is transparency. So regardless of whether or not I can control adjacency in the first place, I need to be able to understand the context in which my ads appeared after the fact. I need to be able to check up on my investment because we understand that these are user-generated content platforms. Content moderation is never going to be perfect because, you know, to some extent, these platforms are a mirror of humanity and there are some quite dark corners if you're constructing a mirror like that. But the question isn't like, is it going to be completely perfect? Will my ad ever possibly show up next to something that I don't like? The question is, how much of my budget ended up in a context that I'm not happy with? And there's a big difference between 20%, 2%, 0.2%, and 0.02%. And without transparency, you don't know which order of magnitude bucket you fall into. That's a serious problem because now with social media, such a major portion of advertising mixes for large advertisers, it's not really acceptable anymore to say, oh, well, you know, that's just how these platforms work. Maybe that was okay, you know, when we were talking about it being 1% of a client's budget. But now when a common media mix could see 10% of a client budget, total budget across all channels going into paid social, that doesn't really fly anymore. So the overall thrust of the initiative is really to bring these platforms in line with the kind of control and accountability we expect in other channels. Granting, there are a lot of real differences, like the reality that there are going to be millions of unique posts that a given ad campaign winds up against, and given the reality that adjacency controls are more complex to implement when you're not submitting a do not air list against a limited schedule of content, and you, you have to find some other way of mapping it, whether it's you know, keyword-based, using machine vision, whatever. So there are real technical challenges, but we think that the principles are just as sound as they are in traditional media. So what is the principal way that CASA interacts with the platforms and the principal way that brands interact with CASA? That's a great question. So when we we launched it, we did a couple of things. So one is we set up a schedule of regular meetings with all of the platforms that we've involved with this. Uh, there are six of them. We're working on this with Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Reddit, Snapchat, and TikTok. And so I have a regular cadence of meetings with them to check in on their progress on all four of the CASA pillars and get development updates. On the brand side, there's a regular meeting that we have where all of our participating clients, which is about 70 or 80% of them, dial in and they get an update from my team on the latest progress, where our platforms in the, the development process. Because at this point, they've all been signed on to the four pillars for some time. So now it's just, uh, we're in the engineering test and evaluation stage. Occasionally, I'll even split the difference and we'll have special guests from the platform companies, typically from the product marketing team, to talk about where they are in the development process and, uh, and field questions. It's actually been a really good experience. It's been very collaborative. Definitely hasn't felt adversarial because 
we've had constant goals on this since we started. The four pillars have not changed one word since we launched this in July. And so not feeling like it's a zero sum game, because it's not like our goal is for all platforms to align with our four pillars. And also feeling like we're not moving the goalposts has really driven a collaborative process as opposed to these platforms feeling like it's a game of gotcha. And it's like, oh, I got a screenshot. I got a screenshot of one ad in one context. And you guys are the worst because that's, you know, for reasons I mentioned earlier, it's just not productive. Yeah, we've, we've all been there in that weird asymmetric spot where, you know, someone's acting as if that singular impression has collapsed the brand. It's a bizarre situation. And to your point, it, it's not productive. I'm glad to hear that the brand's interacting with that work in that framework because I've worked with some brands who are very understanding in the space. And I, I think we've probably all worked with some brands who have that strange absolutist one is one impression too many and you're like you serve 37 billion impressions this year oh well this is where the conversation actually circles back to the auction and pricing topic so it's, this is where it gets really fun the whole thing is as you try to add nines of brand safety your cost will increase geometrically right so if you try to go from 90 percent brand safety to 99 percent brand safety that cost increase might be palatable that might be on the order of like 20% on a user-generated content platform. I'd buy that based on some of the testing that we've done with in-stream platforms like YouTube, where we're able to control placements more carefully. All right, well now let's say you wanna to go to 99.9% .9 brand safety. That's not gonna be a 20% cost increase. That's gonna be multiples. That's gonna be two, three, 400%. What if you wanna to go to 99.99% brand safety? and so on and so forth. So the thing to understand is, like, yes, all of this is possible, but there is a very direct and vivid interaction with ad prices in an auction-based environment. Because the thing that people don't realize is that in a user-generated content platform that's mediated by an auction mechanism, there is no difference between brand safety controls and supply constraints. It's the same thing, right? Because the way that you realize a brand safety control whether it's an exclusion list approach or an inclusion list where you're saying like, I only want to run against this channel, or you can go even narrower. I only want to run against these videos because they're brand safe. What you are doing from a marketplace perspective is restricting your supply. And if you keep your ad demand static, restricting the supply dramatically by 90%, 99% more is going to dramatically jack up your prices. And so I like to talk about this with our teams and our clients because it really forces a conversation out of that purity trap, Lee, that you identified. Because you know, we've all had conversations like that where it's like one bad impression is unacceptable. It's like, I hear you. I see why you feel that way. But can we talk about the trade-offs? Can we talk about the relationship between how many nines you want and what it's going to do to your costs? Because our clients, like all big businesses, have to balance multiple goals and pursue them simultaneously. You can't pursue brand safety with the the <laughs> the approach of an inquisitor at the expense of media pricing, right? Because then that harms other parts of the business. It has to be done in a balanced way. And so that's that's where I at least try to push the conversation when I have the opportunity. I think that's a phenomenal way of having the conversation. To me, a looming thing remains. This is such a ball of yarn. Have people effectively coalesced around the definitions of brand safety and UGC? 
probably the most absurd conversation I've been forced to have in my advertising career, but in which I was being absurd, probably orbited around the very definition of this is bad. So is that something that you guys are taking sort of a previous standard and working with, which would be very understandable because I mean, it's an, it would be an incredible thing on its own to tackle what is bad or is CASA touching the definitions of bad at all? I'm very happy to say that I have not had to deal with that because there's this other industry body called GARM, which is a global alliance for responsible media of which we are a member that did all that definitional work last year. And I believe it's now been finalized. So it's 13 different categories of content ranging from social issues to sexual themes to politics, whatever. And then for each of those different 13 themes, their degrees. So there's a now standard definition of a brand safety floor. So like the consensus is no major advertiser would ever want to be in an environment worse than that. And then beyond that, there are three different degrees of brand suitability, low, medium, and high. Like any industry standard, it's not going to be a perfect fit for every advertiser, but there now at least is a consensus around it, which honestly, the biggest benefit flows to companies on the sell side that are trying to develop solutions. Because previously, for them, and you know, they, they have my sympathies as an agency guy, it's like trying to wrestle Jello because they'd have a conversation with advertiser A who would have their own brand safety standards. You talk to advertiser B, they have a conflicting set of standards. Advertiser C has yet another set of standards. What the hell is the development target for these sell-side companies? Like, <laughs> it's, uh, it puts them in an impossible situation. You know, I know we always laugh about some of these giant firms having unlimited resources, but they can't actually engineer to thousands of different advertiser brand safety definitions at the same time. Even for them, it's not possible. So the fact that now there is a coalescence around at least like major themes and definitions is a huge step forward. And so the hope is that when these platforms implement controls in line with the CASA principles, they'll hook into those definitions. So CASA is saying expose the controls, but it's not being too explicit about what the controls look like. And that's where these GARM definitions really have a role to play because you know Facebook or Twitter or any other feed-based platform can reference them in the controls they develop. They can reference the same list of 13 and give you those four different settings like floor, low, medium, and high and let advertisers make their own choices and experiment with what happens with pricing because honestly, no one knows yet. So that that's how we're seeing this all come together right now. I appreciate that framework is if God forfend there's ever a Lee Elliott lifestyle brand, it uh, will, will definitely be a check no exclusion boxes. And you know, that's the world I'll live in. But it's good that seeing those exposed controls, I can understand what the controls other people may be operating into. Well, that's exactly right. I, I love what you're saying about this hypothetical Lee Elliott lifestyle brand, which, by the way, should become a real thing. I would definitely buy whatever it is you'd be selling. I assume some sort of rugged menswear. <laughs> but yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's like... One of the things that enabled CASA to be so successful is that it's not ideological, it's not puritanical, it's not political. If you're a brand and you want to advertise next to everything to keep your costs at rock bottom, 
you do that. We are good. And if you're looking for an agency, we would be happy to work with you. If, on the other hand, you have another set of standards and you want to be against very squeaky clean content, that's cool too. We would also love to work with you. The whole problem was that until now, advertisers didn't have these choices on these platforms. So it's just about enabling choice. I know that sounds like a cliche, but literally that is what it is about in these contexts because previously adjacency controls just have not been a thing. I think that's fantastic. I love that it comes to that messaging because to play to some of the concerns we've talked about previously, that being the messaging and the sort of the entry point for how you should interact with it is great. You know, I, I think a lot of people's very valid objections to things like IAS and DV that we've discussed previously are about the fear factor, the fear roadshow you know, where somebody does come into your agency and prescribe to you directly, hey, you don't want to sponsor terrorism and cause people to throw up while looking at your ads, do you? And, you know, they shake the sheet that sounds like thunder. So I, I think it's anything that comes with do as you will and do as you would versus some sort of high and mighty judgment is a big improvement on sort of the conventional approach to selling. Safety. Yeah, and I think, you know, to your point about that, the other thing is that it gives advertisers an escape hatch out of, you know, what I call media tag, where, like I said, someone grabs one screenshot of one ad, sends it to AdAge or whatever, and it becomes a big thing. And it leaves advertisers in a really uncomfortable position because it's a binary choice if they don't have any adjacency controls, right? It's like, okay, well, now I guess I have to stop advertising on this platform because I'm getting blasted with screenshots. And if I'm being honest, I'm not controlling what post they end up next to, right? Gave the white supremacist example earlier, right? If that happens, it puts advertisers in a really uncomfortable position. Whereas if they're in this world where there are elaborate controls, or even decent controls, and they've implemented them, their response is a lot more straightforward, in my opinion. I am not a PR professional. This is not public relations advice. But in my opinion, it's a lot simpler because they could say, look, this is a really unfortunate thing that happened. However, there are a lot of controls available on this platform. We've implemented all of them. So from our perspective, this is a technical issue for Platform X to iron out, and we're working with them on it. Like that feels very calm, you know, as opposed to where we are right now. It's this game of tag that I don't really think is good for anybody. Yeah, but I think there's also the, the still the side in the client services world of you're still kind of in that that gotcha moment. Even if you do all these things and, you know, it kind of rolls downhill from, from the client, it's always presented as, did you do the thing that I told you to do? You know, and it's always, you know, on the potential human error of, of the setup of the campaign. It's always the first thing that's always questions. It's it's never, oh, hang on, maybe there was an issue with one of these platforms rolling out content or something that kind of like slipped through the, the approval process or whatever it is. But it, it is always kind of from a client services standpoint, always presented as a potential gotcha moment, which is always kind of like stress inducing for, for you know, the first 45 minutes after you receive it to try to like investigate actually what happened. Uh, and a lot of times it's exactly as you said, you know, we followed through all the processes and everything's in place and it just happened. And from an agency to a client standpoint, sometimes that's still not, sometimes not an acceptable answer uh, in terms of not like being able to explain how something like this like transpired on our watch. From the perspective of fielding uncomfortable questions from clients, as Don Draper said, that's what the money is for. If advertisers wanted to deal with all of this by themselves, they wouldn't hire agencies and they'd be 100% in-house. 
and some are. And part of the benefit you get by hiring an agency is you get someone to call and say, what the hell happened here? Now, the second part of what you said is where we start to veer into the world of unfairness, where you know there's a full operations audit of what went down, and it's clear there was zero human error involved, and that's still somehow unsatisfactory. That I would take exception with, and I've had some heated conversations in situations like that in my time. But like when uh, when an engine cowling falls off an aircraft, as happened recently, people want to know why that happened. Were the pi- were the pilots doing something crazy up there? Were they were they hot dogging it, or was there a problem with the maintenance crew? Did they not do their inspections, or is the problem with the engine design? It's fundamentally faulty, and a defect in the turbine blade couldn't have been detected with a visual inspection. People who are buying are entitled to a post mortem when things go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. That that balance in terms of doing your due diligence and making sure that. All the boxes were checked and the protocols and procedures were, were fulfilled. But yeah, just also just dancing on that, that knife's edge sometimes in just terms of like, we can espouse conjecture on, on what we think happened. But at this point in time, it's kind of beyond our purview. And, you know, we'll help you as, as far as we can in, in terms of getting to the bottom of this from, from the platform. Because a lot of times, the you know, as you have experienced, the agencies have a little bit, sometimes a little bit more power uh, in these conversations, you know, than the advertisers directly do just by the collective like buying power that we kind of start to assemble in a mass. been a fantastic main part of the episode and you've brought more than enough access to grind perhaps no log has gone unchopped in the realms of both auction dynamics and safety in the social environment from a brand perspective but we do still have the traditional final question what is your other since you've already brought a couple thing that goes on in digital marketing that Maybe it's what grinds your gears the most. Maybe it's not the thing that grinds them the most, but it's the thing that people talk about the least. Or maybe it's just the outright most humorous, like, come on, digital marketing thing that you think is going on right now. All right. I've got one. Okay. So, Lee, you were talking earlier about the uh, the separation between IO buying and all the other stuff. I was. All right. So for reasons that I'm not going to get into, a while ago working with someone on my team to undertake a line item level audit of all of our digital media buys. Okay, so think about that. We're buying from a major publisher. Let's say, perhaps for sake of argument, they're a a publisher best known for their legacy print media, right? And so they put together a package. A package. What is in the package? Well, let's unwrap the package. It's a mixture of some sort of sponsored editorial, custom creative, something that like you could not simply buy on the open market in an auction system. Okay, so far so good. Sounds good, right? Like you gotta pay if you want something custom made. You want an advertorial? That's not free. All right. Go down to the next line item. It's some run of site ads. It's like fifty or a hundred grand at five times the prevailing market price. Just tucked in there. Just just tucked in. Total commodity garbage display ads. That that would be my thing. It's not it's not my biggest beef. I got into those uh, in the main stretch, but boy, when I see that, it bothers me. 
If you had talked to me at two years ago, that would have been the number one thing that was my biggest axe to grind. And even now, it's like if you get a sort of like if you see a proposal from someone who's like, oh, and here's some run of set run of network ads, run of site ads. It's like, let me just pull a report on our past URL domain data. Hmm. Interesting. I can actually see here that the going rate for your impressions is this. So oof, that's a good one. I did some consulting at one point previously for a major publisher and discovered this was an internal source of data. Oh, really? Yes. Sat in on a ton of meetings, including a lot of meetings where salespeople were giving feedback to the operations and product design, product design being the ad product getting sold design people I was working with. And more than one person said, I really don't want to do this like $5 and 50 cent run of site line item thing, which this publisher was not even ultra gouging. Now on the open market, it would fetch way less than that. And they were like, why do we even do, I don't understand. Like someone explained to me why I can't get this knocked off my deals when I'm trying to do them. Even when I beg for it to get knocked off and they were like, Okay, look, the margin between that $5 and 50 cents and what we, we do on the open market, like that's, you're sitting in a chair because of that. <laughs> and, they, and these people were like, I think we could be sitting in much nicer chairs through a higher degree of trust and bigger deal size and better close rate if I were literally not banned from knocking these off my deals. So I've seen it in a publisher where it even strains the salespeople because the, the words worth zero dollars were thrown out by one of them. <laughs> Someone was like, well, we're only asking like 550. And they were like, we're a big editorial, huge content production shop. No one comes for this. They were like, it's like selling a really expensive side salad and we make the worst side salad in town and the steak's not bad. Like, and it was just like, yeah, no, I, it, it, so I have, I have literally seen salespeople at the platforms revolt like, no, I would like to sell them the fucking online TV show, you know, not, not this weird side accoutrement that we lose the buying a content series on. What's so weird about it to me is that it's always attached to something that's actually premium. You know, premium is probably one of the most abused words in media, but when you're doing one of these, it typically actually is. Like I said, it's something that is being made custom for your brand. That's not a typical occurrence. So it's like you're buying a Ferrari and they're like, uh, uh, yeah, and um, we're also going to need you to pay $1,000 for this uh, push cart to go with it. Yeah. Yeah, the Ferrari was two hundred grand, but it's going to be a thousand dollar push cart. Can't have the Ferrari without that. Like, why don't you just charge me a thousand more dollars for the Ferrari? That would be way less weird than this. So that's that's kind of where I'm at with it. It's not even like I'm paying too much in general for this nice custom thing. It's like, why are you overcharging me for this other thing? It's just it feels déclassé. Yeah, it's like they could like just pad their pad their margins or, or make up their margins, not necessarily pad them, but, but make it up with these these custom executions and anything else is just added value. Yeah, like exactly. It just seems 
to be like the the way to secure more deals uh, by by just providing more added value. When we were slinging ads for for the big phone overlords, that was our bread and butter. Was trying to get more more added value out of like particular buys just because of the volume of impressions and those kind of things that you would get from those those engagements. So. It, well, it's funny because almost one of my pet peeves is that there are still people out there for whom added value is a cheat code. <laughs> like, I mean, it could literally be like, well, how much is the media program? Uh, $250,000. How much added value is there? Zero dollars. We're just selling it to you at a cost. I despise this. and You are a disgusting man. Yeah. Go back to the elevator. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. We're going to give you 80% of it at $200,000. In the last 20%, we're waiving $50,000. It's added value. <laughs> but then there's a $50,000 writer. Oh, 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 you know, like clap for the added value. So it's funny because a very legitimate pet peeve is overcharging for open market programmatic inventory. One of my pet peeves is there are still people who can just be tricked with added value. Why not trick them with added value using the thing that I can attest that one gigantic website salespeople are like, please don't make me try and charge people money for this. Well, there's a a lot of uh, clients that like really take the the volume that they can amass via added value as a big like pat on their back, you know, or a feather in their cap in terms of their, their ability to put together and orchestrate this like awesome deal, but it might not necessarily be the most awesome deal if every deal that you're selecting is the deal that kind of comes with the preferential added value that that you would like like to see. So it is kind of like this quasi rock in a hard place kind of experience in terms of like trying to like orchestrate and find a value uh, in whatever you're trying to purchase. And, and if it, this keeps getting like obscured by value added, value added here and there, um, it just kind of creates this like, big mess um and it's just not good for anyone well do you want to hear my galaxy brain take on the added value thing would love to hear nothing more okay so honestly i really think it all comes back to what we were talking about earlier how there's very little transparency in media markets at least from the perspective of an outsider looking in like if you're sitting at a big agency you can see so much that you have a pretty good representation of the market as a whole right But let's say you're over at the client side, you don't have access to that. So who's to say what a given stack of impressions was really worth? It's all kind of arbitrary, isn't it? As opposed to, let's say you work in like commodities acquisition for some big manufacturer, right? And you're buying barrels of oil or something like that. This added value stuff doesn't fly because there's a market price for a barrel of oil. So if someone's like, well, the, mar- the market price might be $40 a barrel. I'm going to charge you $80 a barrel for the first hundred and the second hundred will be value add. Any accountant looking at that is going to say, uh, well, no, actually, there's no bargain here because I here have in my spreadsheet what the market price of oil was on those days and the net value of your deal was not an improvement on just buying straight up on the market, right? How's some accountant going to make the same assessment of media added value? They can't. And there's even the dirtiest trick. Uh, this is my favorite dirty added value trick that I, it took me a long time to learn because I had to move out of media into other things. Oh, well, we're going to make this for you or even, even cheaper. Oh, we'll retrofit that for our platform. Ooh, that's usually a $10,000 production fee. We're going to make that added value. What person on a media call 
is going to be like, that's not $10,000 of production fee. You see publishers even getting into the deep dirty, which is throwing on added value that I think someone did those publishers know is not, you know, what they prescribe it is to the extent of, oh, we have to resize all the videos. Oh, don't worry. It's, it's added value. Now it would cost $40,000 to resize these videos, but uh, it's added value. Some video production person might be like that. That's like four hours. That's like, it's like $480 of added value. But like, there's no chance that anyone doing media negotiation at, at the levels that this is happening can even weigh in on that. So to your point, there's no uniform media value system that someone in financial control can access. And then some publishers are splicing in non-media commodities that they know the people they're dealing with will have no idea about. It's insane. Exactly. But I do think, honestly, it's all going to get better. I don't I don't want to stake out a time horizon in the near future, but I'd say 10 years from now, there's going to be a lot more transparency into what the going rate is for various things. And I think this kind of silliness will uh, will become less and less common. But yeah, it is uh, it is amazing when you compare it to what happens in other markets, for sure. Well, Ben, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a tremendous episode. We appreciate your time, as always. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it was great. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, it's, it's been another episode of Bad Impressions. Like, follow, subscribe, don't comment. I learned that's not a real thing a couple months ago, so I won't ask for that anymore. Uh, hit us up at the website, send us an email, any feedback, any guest suggestions, any guest requests. Anyway, have a wonderful rest of your morning, noon, night, or evening, whenever you're listening to this, buying media or doing whatever else.